Would you turn again, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3? 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Plenty of Bibles on the shelves on the back if you haven't got one with you. And it'll be a help to you to be able to see 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, this is a chapter with a clear subject. My Bible's got a heading at the top. Those headings weren't original in the Bible, but they usually always quite get it. Has This is a chapter about divisions in the church, about the church being divided. Do we need to hear this? Well, I'm glad to say I don't think we're particularly divided at the moment at Hollywell. I don't think we've got the sort of divisions that were really wrecking the church in Corinth. I'm glad to say I don't think that's going on here at the moment. We don't need every time we hear the Bible talking about a sin to think we must be guilty of that sin. We don't have to always come to that conclusion. But we still need the teaching. We still need the teaching of 1 Corinthians 3 because division in the church and division between churches, that's relevant too, has happened so much down through church history. It happens so often, we can't pretend it will never happen to us. And some of the influences that cause division in the church in Corinth, we are still prone to. So, let's use 1 Corinthians 3 now to guard us against division and to help us to see if we have any attitudes that are a danger to unity of Christ's church. I want to do this by two simple halves. First of all, the problem, and then secondly, the answer. First the problem and then the answer. Very simple. First of all, the problem. Now, I need to begin by explaining the structure of this chapter. And it might help to think of this. Out there in the entrance hall, there are books on a table. And a lot of them are standing on end. Why are they not falling off the end of the table? Why aren't they falling over? What's stopping it happening? They've got bookends. There are bookends. Often Bible passages have bookends. Jewish literature, Hebrew literature liked symmetry and having symmetrical ends of passages. And the Bible is a very Jewish book, not just the Old, but also the New Testament. And chapter three starts and ends in similar ways. The beginning and the end are like bookends. The beginning and the end have similarities and tell us the problem that was going on. I'm meaning verses 1 to 4 and verses 18 to 23 are like the bookends. The same themes come up, not exactly, but very similar. And they tell us what the problem is. Let's see the problem. First of all, worldliness, being like the world. Verse 1. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. Now, what is your mental image of a worldly person? If you pictured a worldly person, what would your mental image be? Kira wears the latest fashions. She's always got the latest fashions on. And she knows what music is top of the charts. Kenneth would look at home in the 1950s. He's dressed that way ever since. And he doesn't have a clue about the latest music. He wouldn't listen to anything more modern than Beethoven. Now, 
I, I was, by the way, wondering about showing some pictures on the screen of them, but I thought there's a little bit of a risk in doing that sort of thing. Your image of a worldly or a not-worldly person. Which of those is worldly? Well, we don't know, actually. Don't know. Kira might be. She might be too driven by the fashions of society and just fitting in with society. But, you know, Kenneth might feel quite superior to Kira, and he might keep aloof from her, and he might look down on Christians like her. However unworldly he looks, that would be a worldly attitude. Because Paul says the Corinthians, he says in verse 1, they're worldly. But as we read on through the chapter, we discover he's seen their worldliness in their division-causing attitudes. Worldliness doesn't just show up in the obvious appearance stereotypical ways. It can be in attitudes that are divisive, that cause division of Christ's church. Now, what is meant by this word worldly? You might have a different translation from mine. I've got the NIV and in verse 1 it talks about them as being worldly. You might have a different word, maybe carnal or fleshly. Fleshly is the word here. They're controlled by the flesh. That means they're acting as if the sinful nature is in control. That's why it says in verse 3, at the end of the verse 3, are you not acting like mere men? By the way, when it says men there, it means humans. It doesn't mean males. It's not saying you're acting like males, act more like females. It's saying you're acting like mere humans. And you might think, but what does Paul expect? Aren't they humans? Yes, they are. The church is full of humans in Corinth. But they are not mere humans. See, however wrong this church has got at Corinth, and it has got really wrong, Paul does think they are Christians. And so they are not mere humans. They are humans who have the Holy Spirit. And he believes they do have the Holy Spirit for all their problems. They have the Holy Spirit. But they're acting as if sin is in control, not the Spirit is in control. And that's what he means by they're worldly. They're acting like the rest of the world. Because in the rest of the world, sin is in control. But here are people with the Spirit, and they're acting as if they don't have the Spirit. What are the evidences that makes Paul call them worldly? Well, let's go through a few of them. Here's one, jealousy. Verse 3. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy among you, are you not worldly? Jealousy was a sign of their worldliness. And that is dividing them. It's causing division. When, God willing, we get on to chapters 12, 13 and 14, we'll find they were jealous of each other's gifts. They were jealous of each other's reputations in the church, but particularly centred around gifts that looked good. To put it in our context, it could be something a bit like this. Jane is good at hospitality. She's really good at inviting people round to her home and getting to know them. And she's a good bridge builder between different groups and people in the church. Good at bringing people together and making them feel welcome. Evie notices that and notices that people think highly of Jane. And instead of being glad for the good that Jane is doing for the church, she's jealous of Jane's good reputation. She's jealous of the way that Jane is appreciated by others. Now that is worldly. 
That attitude comes from the sinful nature, not the spirit. The Holy Spirit would make us glad for other people's good they're doing and the way that others appreciate them. The sinful nature says, no, I want that. Let's put her down to put me up. And it's easy to see that such jealousy can pull people apart and divide the church. The Corinthians are worldly, it's seen in jealousy. It's seen in they have a problem with quarrelling. Verse 3 again. For since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Now, if that jealousy remains buried, it will result in bitterness and grumbling. But if that jealousy is allowed to come to the surface, it will result in quarrelling, which of course will pull the church apart. Division. Their worldliness is also seen in, I'm trying to move rapidly here, in being personality driven. Verse 4. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? You're being worldly. Now, this had become a big problem in the Corinthian church, dividing into groups that one followed Paul and another followed Apollos and They were personality driven. You can see it back in chapter 1, verse 11. Chapter 1, verse 11. My brothers, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas, which, by the way, is the Apostle Peter. And then others, well, they were more spiritual. We follow Christ. We're better than you. We follow Christ. It doesn't mean they really were better. It means they think they're better and they think they're super spiritual. They were like fan clubs, each one boasting about its leader. You can see that at the other bookend of chapter three. Remember, you've got these bookends and similar topics come up. So chapter three, verse 21 says, so then no more boasting about men. They're boasting about their leaders. Some say, Paul, he's an, he's an apostle, he's the great one. Others say, no, Paul's no good as a preacher. He's really not very impressive. Apollos, now he's a great speaker. And they boast about the men who lead their fan club. They're like people in fan clubs. Now, if you're a 13-year-old, it might be okay to be in a fan club. I mean, it's not that great, but it might be okay. And to have the posters on your wall and to be eager to hear the latest news from your celebrity. But imagine you go around the house of a 50-year-old, and there's all the posters on the wall of the, the celebrity that they're a fan of. You'd say, how immature. And that was the Corinthians. Verse 1, he says, you're mere infants in Christ. Come on, Corinthians, you're being so immature, being in these fan clubs, having your, I look to this man, no, I look to that man. Sadly, there's been a lot of this down through church history. Celebrities within the church. Groups around church leaders and celebrity preachers. I follow Tim Keller. No, I follow Martin Lloyd-Jones. No, I follow Beth Moore. And it's, it's not just 21st or even 20th century. It's happened down through church history. And our society makes it still a danger for us today. In fact, it might be a greater danger than before because we're in a society that is 
as a celebrity culture and because we have this thing called the internet, which magnifies the danger of having groupings following leaders that look impressive. Now, it's not wrong to have preachers you particularly like. It's not wrong to have songwriters that you particularly appreciate. But you need to watch out for pinning too much on certain people. Or grouping around a leader, a fan club attitude, is immature. Here's a variation of this. It's not always about people. It, it can be grouping around a project or a hobby horse. In other words, something you have a particular interest in. So it might be a particular Christian organisation you think is great, and people who follow a different Christian organisation, well, you just keep your distance from them. It might be a particular method of evangelism. That is the way. And it's the people who follow that method. They are the people. It might be a particular issue. Creation or revival or fulfilment of prophecy. Now, it's not wrong to have your particular interests or your particular methods that you want to promote. But just be careful. Be careful they don't become dividing lines between those you're suspicious of and those you're comfortable with. Those you spend time with and those you keep aloof from. One more, I think I've got one more way the Corinthians worldliness was seen and it's this, importing society's attitudes into the church. This is verses 18 to 20. Verses 18 to 20, this talk of being wise or being a fool, being clever and impressive or not seeming very clever and not very eloquent. It was importing society's attitudes into the church. We've seen in the last two weeks when we've been going through 1 Corinthians, this church was too impressed by what their society was impressed by. It had taken on society's values. And being ancient Greece, society's value, society valued clever people who were good speakers, who could impress you by their clever talk and their captivating speeches. And that's what Paul is warning against again in verses 18 to 21. This was dividing the church as they judged people by society's values. Is this person clever? Is this person looking impressive? Is this person a good speaker? Paul says, look, you've taken in society's values and it's dividing you. Now, we have to be careful that society's values don't get into the church and divide us. I'll give you some examples. Keeping our distance from people who seem old-fashioned and out of touch. Because they might give us a bad image. Our society doesn't value people who seem old-fashioned and out of touch. That's really looked down on. And so we could keep our distance. They're bad for our image. Favouring people on the basis of their image. Our society's really into image. And that can get into the church. Who is popular? Who gets a following? Who is influential in the church? They can be so affected by image. But that is immature to allow society's value of image to get into what we value. Here's another example, society's values getting into us, appointing people to responsibility according to 
whether they're professional and successful. Society's values getting in and will cause division. Here's another one. What about this? Letting our society's quarrels and its hot issues of culture get into the church and become quarrels and divisive issues here. I'm sure you can think of some. But what are hot issues in our culture today and things that people quarrel over? Brexit? Covid and vaccines? The environment? Now, I'm all for us having opinions and even strong opinions on them. But if the quarrels get imported into the church, or maybe just keeping our distance from people who disagree with us on them, or maybe comments that imply that, of course, we all believe the same thing on those here and people who don't, well, they're just, they're just not part of us. It's importing society's values in a way that would divide the church. Well, that's enough of the problem. We've now been looking at the bookends of the chapter to see their problem. They are worldly and immature and it's dividing the church. What about the answer? Let's spend the rest of the time now on the answer. Paul is concerned to answer this problem and stop them being divisive. And he gives them four things. Let's now go through the four things he gives them. Here's the first one, rebuke. Verses one to four is a rebuke. And it's a bit like this. Why don't you treat me like an adult, complains the teenager. He's convinced he's mature and his parents just treat him like a little child and are so restrictive of him. Whereas he thinks he's mature. Why don't you treat me like an adult, he says. And the reply comes back, we will treat you like an adult when you start behaving like an adult. Only yesterday you got in a tantrum and kicked over your little brother's Lego castle. And last time we let you go out on your own, you ended up on the other side of Loughborough, run out of money, and we had to come back and come and fetch you home. We will treat you like an adult when you start behaving like an adult. Now, have you ever heard that sort of thing? Or maybe even said it, or been on the receiving end of it? That is what verses 1 to 4 is a bit like. The Corinthians really thought they were mature. They thought they were the top Christians. And Paul says, verse 1, you are mere infants. Verse 2, I've had to feed you milk because you're not yet good enough for eating solid food. You're like a little baby on milk. It's really quite a strong rebuke he gives them. And he starts with that because sometimes we need rebuking. Do you accept that you will sometimes need rebuking? We all know, in theory, that we will sometimes need rebuking. But do we really accept that we will sometimes need rebuking? When did you last accept a rebuke graciously and act on it? That's well worth thinking about. Because it does indicate whether we really accept we will sometimes need rebuking. I'll read you some verses from Proverbs. There are loads of places where Proverbs says this sort of thing. I'll read you from Proverbs chapter 9. And think about how this relates to you. Proverbs 9, verse 7. Whoever corrects a mocker invites insult. Whoever rebukes a wicked man incurs, rebuke, uh, incurs abuse. Do not rebuke a mocker 
or he will hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Are you a mocker or are you a wise person? It's shown by how you respond to rebuke. Paul, really, he, he does think these people are real Christians. And this church has got good things going for it. And so he's concerned to mend the divisions. And so he rebukes them. But it's not the only thing he gives them. Next, he gives them a right view of God's servants. This is verses five to nine, a right view of God's servants. Now, Paul is here correcting the personality driven division. And he's saying to these Corinthians, you are misunderstanding who these people are. They are God's servants. They are reliant on God. And he does it with an illustration. And I'll repeat but change his illustration. A couple of years ago, our family planted onions. We got a packet of little onions to plant in the garden, tiny little onions. And I thought we followed the instructions. And if I remember rightly, it was early spring. We planted these onions, tiny little ones, in our vegetable patch. And for the next half a year, we watered them and we cared for them. And just over half a year later, we pulled them up and they were still tiny little onions. They were no bigger than when we planted them. We had effectively stored tiny onions in mud for half a year. It seemed to be a reasonable store of them. They hadn't rotted, but they just stayed there the same. We couldn't make them grow. Now, I expect some of you would do a lot lot better job. Some of you would be better gardeners and would know what we'd got wrong. And some of them would grow. But even if you're a good gardener, I bet not all of them would grow. Because it's God who makes things grow. And you might be better than we were at planting and watering, but still they wouldn't all grow because it's only God who makes things grow. Now, Paul here in verses 5 to 9 is not saying there's something dodgy about that Apollos, keep away from him. He's not saying Peter is quite a useless fellow, he doesn't know how to start a church. These leaders are God's fellow workers. Do you notice in verse 9, these leaders are God's fellow workers. That's, that's great. And they were good at planting and watering churches. They knew what they were doing. And in fact, in chapter 4, Paul will appeal to them to respect him as their father in the gospel. He says, you ought to respect me. I'm like your father in the gospel. So he's not saying, all these people are no good. They're, they're like my family with onions. No, they were good at planting and watering. But his emphasis is, It's only God who makes things grow. These men are nothing without God. Only God can make the church grow. Verse 7. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The power all comes from God. In fact, the church belongs to God, is his emphasis in verse 9. We are God's fellow workers, we belong to him. You are God's field, you belong to him. You are God's building, it all belongs to him. Thank God for good servants in his church. I hope you do thank God for them. But remember, they are servants in his church. They shouldn't be leaders of a group that centres around them. They shouldn't be on top of a pillar 
for us to admire them and for them to show off. They are part of the pillar that's all about showing Christ. So he gives them rebuke. He gives them a right view of God's servants. And then thirdly, he gives them a right view of the church. This is verses 10 to 17. Now, verses 10 to 17 could look a bit of a difficult paragraph. So I want to give you some simple questions to help us see it's not that hard and for us to get the main message. So here's some simple questions. I was going to give this a try. First one is for those under 15. There are some here under 15, aren't there? Are you going to speak up and tell us what is the church pictured as in verses 10 to 17? I'll give you some help. It talks about a foundation and it talks about Paul doing some building. And another clue is look at the last two words of verse nine, because they're introducing this all. Anyone under 15 going to tell us what is the picture of the church here? The church is what? Hannah Mizen looked like she was about to answer for us. I might need to go up to under 20, might I? I don't know. Okay, we'll we'll open it out. Anyone else going to tell us? What is the picture of? The church is a building, isn't it? It's a building. It's like a home. This building is a home. Okay, next question. Let's say anyone under 30. Can anyone under 30 tell us what is the foundation of the building? Have a look at that paragraph. Can you spot the foundation of the building? We've moved up to anyone under 30. Jesus Christ, thank you, thank you. I'd wondered how old you were, Philip. (laughs) It's Jesus Christ, yes. There's no other possible foundation. There's no other possible foundation. A community of people who were sinners far off from God and anti-God and anti-each other as well. But now knowing and worshipping God, there's nothing else that could be built on except Jesus. Who he is and what he's done is the only possible foundation. Next question. Let's forget the age categories because we'll start to get a little sensitive. Right? All our activity in the church has to be built on that foundation, Jesus himself. What's the difference between the building materials that we build on that foundation in verse 12? So do you get the picture? Jesus is the foundation for the church and we build on him. Everything we do must be building on him. But we could build with various different materials. What is the difference between the different building materials in verse 12? Yeah, so some of those building materials can get burnt up. They're easily flammable. So that is, verse 12, wood, hay, straw. Ever tried burning them? They burn very well. Or there is gold, silver, precious stones. They don't really burn. Okay, the impurities will burn away, but they themselves don't burn easily. I'll add the easily in because I'm, so in case I'm scientifically wrong. Okay, but they're certainly less flammable. There is another difference, actually. Can anyone think of another difference between those two lots of materials? I'll give you a clue. Think about 
The most important building in the Old Testament and what it was built with. They're costly. Yeah, they are very costly and therefore were used for what? Old Testament. Very important building. The temple. The temple was built with gold, silver and precious stones. Whereas an ordinary person's house in that culture was built with wood, hay, straw. I know it's not in England, but think where this was written. Wood, hay, straw was an ordinary poor person's house. The temple, God's house, built with gold, silver and precious stones. An ordinary person's house built with wood, hay, straw. Okay, that's, that's significant. But the main thing is what Adrian mentioned, wood, hay, straw get burnt up. So here's my next question. When do they get burnt up? When is that fire? When is the fire that burns them up? Yes, the end of time, because it says in verse 13, the day, and in the Bible, the day is looking forward to that great day when Christ returns. The day of judgment. Now, here it is picture language, not an actual fire picture language here because it's talking about leaders in the church it isn't talking about sending people to hell far less is it talking about purgatory there's no such thing as purgatory that's just made up by the roman catholic church and it's not here in this verse it's picture language there are leaders in the church and some of them what they've done will on the day of judgment prove to be worthwhile and lasting and they this paragraph tells us will be rewarded I suspect that reward is simply what it says in chapter 4, verse 5. Receiving praise from God. I doubt it's different classes of people in heaven or different levels of enjoyment of heaven. I'm not sure, but I doubt it. I expect it's receiving praise from God on the day of judgment. Some of the leaders, yes, they're saved. Our paragraph says they are saved. They do get to heaven. But what they've done will not prove to be as lasting or worthwhile. They may be true Christians, but their work in the church may have been more about building their house than God's house. Remember what I said about gold, silver and precious stones or wood, hay, stubble. Were they building God's house or were they building their own house? What I mean is, are they trying to promote Christ's cause or are they trying to promote their own cause? Is it about promoting God's kingdom or is it about feathering their own nest? Their cause, their status, maybe even their income. Well, if they're true Christians, they'll still be in heaven, they'll still be saved, but there's there's an element of shame here for them, of it being shown up that they're what they were doing, that their work wasn't worthwhile. It wasn't about God's kingdom. And if they go beyond that and are even destroying God's temple, purposely dividing God's people, that's evidence they are not truly belonging to Christ and God will destroy them. That's verse 16 and 17. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Wow, the Bible talks about God destroying people forever. 
Now, next question, but this isn't one to answer aloud, but to think about. What is the lesson of this paragraph? What's the main lesson in the context that Paul is giving, that God is giving through Paul? It's this, the church is so precious to God, he will not ignore how we treat it. It's his house. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's built on Jesus. And so we must value it and value its unity and and flee from anything that would divide and destroy the church of Christ. And we must be careful about who leads in his church. Is it people who are promoting Christ's cause or promoting their own cause? And we must make sure that all of our serving in the church is about building God's house, not building our house. In other words, it's about promoting Jesus, not promoting us. That's what this is doing in the context of the chapter. He's giving them a right view of the church because they're acting in a way that's tearing the church apart. And he says, don't you realise how precious to God is the church that you're tearing apart? Okay, fourth thing. We've had Paul gives them a rebuke, a right view of God's servants, a right view of God's church, and then lastly, a right view of themselves. Or we can say to us, he gives a right view of ourselves. This is the last verses, 21 to 23. Now, Paul has warned them about people who will be destroyed, but he thinks better things of these Christians. He thinks they're acting like mere men, but he doesn't think they are mere men. No, he's pretty convinced that these are real Christians who really do have the Spirit of God. But they're acting below what they are. They say... I belong to Paul. Another says, no, no, I belong to Apollos. Another says, no, no, I belong to Peter. And Paul says, you've got it the wrong way round. Actually, verse 22, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. He says, Paul and Apollos and all these other leaders, they belong to you. You say, I belong to Paul. No, actually, Paul belongs to you. You've got it the wrong way round. It's a bit like this. Imagine a fallout in the royal family. Is that hard to imagine? (laughs) Sadly not at the moment. That's not a joke, because it is sad to see the state they're in. But imagine there's a fallout. And Princess Anne, she says, I belong to Jeeves the butler. I'm on his side. And Charles says, oh, no, I don't think much of Jeeves the butler. I belong to Smith the cook. I'm on his side. And Prince William says, I'm with neither of you. I don't think they're any good. No, I belong to Brown the gardener. That's ridiculous, isn't it? That's ridiculous. You don't belong to them. They are your servants. They belong to you. And you are the royal family. And your family, so that means you shouldn't be dividing and saying, I belong to Jeeves the butler and I belong to Smith the cook. No, you're royal family. They are there to serve you. Well, verses 21 to 23 are a bit like that. Paul says to them, you belong to Christ. Do you see that in verse 23? You belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. He is God's appointed king. And everything is Christ's. Because he's God's appointed king, he inherits the whole world. 
and you're one with him. He's the king and you're in him. You're his royal family. So don't go saying, I belong to this person or I belong to that person and going off into your groups. You've got it all the wrong way round. They're Christ's servants and so in a sense they belong to you and are there to serve you. Doesn't mean treat them like dirt. No, but it means see what you are in Christ. Paul had a stern rebuke for these Christians. Verse 1, you are so immature and worldly, you're acting like babies. But it's not because he had a low view of them. He had a high view of them. Come on, he's saying, why are you acting like mere men when you are not? You are royalty in Christ. So he says to them, effectively, stop this I belong to Paul, I belong to Apollos. It's beneath you because you belong to Christ. Stop this insecure jealousy of other people's gifts. You've got no reason for insecurity because you belong to Christ. You're his family. Stop this quarrelling and tearing each other down. How dare you do such a thing because they belong to Christ. It's a stern rebuke, but it's based on a high view of the Christian. Division in the church is often due to us having a low view of our fellow Christians. So, you might say, Hollywell doesn't, and then how do you finish the sentence? What's your grumble about Hollywell? Hollywell doesn't, and then what would you say? Or, people don't, and then how would you finish your sentence? What's, What's your grumble about other people? People don't, and then you finish the sentence. Well, Who do you mean by Hollywell? Who are these other people who don't whatever it is you grumble about them? Or do whatever it is you grumble about them? Who are they? They're your brothers and sisters in Christ's royal family. Have a high view of your fellow Christians. And that will be a guard against so much division in the church. The Corinthian problem of worldly attitudes in the church hasn't gone away. Thankfully, I don't think at the moment we're divided in the same tearing themselves apart way the Corinthians were. But but we are in a situation full of dangers like theirs. We are in a society that is so much like theirs. So, store up the teaching of 1 Corinthians 3 in your mind, ready as a guard and a help against worldly attitudes and against us dividing at all. Let's pray that God would help us to do that. Let's pray.